Hello and welcome to Aspects of History. I'm Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. If you're new to Aspects of History, we're a magazine and website dedicated to history and historical fiction. Head over to aspectsofhistory.com where you'll find articles, interviews, book reviews and short stories and they're all absolutely free. Our magazine is at the insanely cheap price of under a tenner for a year's subscription and that's under a tenner in American as well. Anyway, on to the podcast. If you enjoy it, please give it a great rating. It'll help us carry on running them. In today's podcast, our first, we are very fortunate to have the acclaimed historian Roger Morehouse join us. He's the author of First to Fight, a brilliant account of the first days of World War II. The war began on this week in 1939, and whilst everyone here in the UK knows about Britain's declaration of war, the Nazi and Soviet invasions of Poland is less well known. Roger's book is very important. He explodes myths and uncovers staggering brutality by the two totalitarian powers. This podcast is part one in which Roger sets the scene, describing the first few days and the Nazi advance. In part two, out next week, Roger goes on to talk about what the Poles went through, with numerous atrocities committed by the Nazis and Soviets. I do hope you enjoy our discussion, and please give us a great rating if you do. Okay, so Roger Morehouse, welcome to Aspects of History, our first podcast, Roger. So uh, that's a bit of an event for us. Fabulous. I'm delighted to hear it on. So today we're going to be talking about your book, um, which has actually been out, I think, for nearly 18 months or so. Uh, Two years, actually. It came came out on the 80th anniversary of the events it describes, and we're we're now at the 82nd anniversary. So two years, almost exactly. Great. So the book we're talking about, First to Fight, um, which is the uh, account of the invasion of Poland by the Germans and the Russians. So, yeah, First to Fight. Uh, And and in the US, you you, you just told me, actually, it's it's, it's a different title. Yeah, in the US, it's called uh, Poland 1939, but it's the same book. Okay, so... um, so we have a number of questions for you. Um, mm. So, Roger, first off, I mean, it, it does cover, those, as I say, it covers the Nazi and Soviet invasion of, of Poland in September 1939. Mm. Um, what inspired you to write about this? Well, really, the first major event of the war? Um, partly that, partly that it is, you know, it is a big event and it's one that sort of traditionally gets ignored. And that that is the sort of key to my fascination with this subject um i have a sort of a horror of of you know doing the subjects that everyone else has already done um far too much history and particularly popular history in my opinion is kind of um sort of regurgitates what's been done before and adds a sort of a slightly different spin or a slightly different gloss but is essentially the same narrative so you've got you know competing books on you know dunkirk or you know the 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 blessed dam busters raid um and, you know, that's all well and good, but I, that's not what I want to do. I'd rather try and find subjects that are, you know, as relevant or more relevant and more significant, certainly more significant than, than the Dambusters raid. Um, and, and at the same time, there are stories that haven't been told or haven't been told sort of, uh, you know, well enough or coherently enough. And I think this fell very, very squarely into that category, the, the September campaign is the opening campaign of the war. It's the, it's the event that's, that brings Britain and France into the war, create, you know, makes World War II happen in Europe. Um, 
and it's and in the process a country is destroyed it's invaded by its two totalitarian neighbors and is systematically destroyed um that story in itself uh should warrant telling and retelling over and over again but strangely it doesn't so so the september campaign really you know doesn't really feature in in most of the standard histories of the war you know you can read them and you might have a couple of pages maybe sometimes even a couple of paragraphs only about the september campaign and then that's about it um and it has always struck me that there's a much bigger story behind it than than those couple of pages or those um couple of paragraphs permit so that's why i wanted to um to research it and try and tell that story and to, and crucially to give the polls their voice because they've been almost completely absent from that narrative it's been written largely from the german perspective where it has been written at all um and the polls are just sort of shadowy two-dimensional you know victims you know nameless figures really and i wanted to give the polls back their voice so i've, so I've sort of used a lot of um, you know, diaries and archival accounts, you know, of individuals, whether they be soldiers, civilians, everything else, to really try and bring that alive. And you certainly have, actually. It's, it, it's, I mean, I, I find it such a riveting book. I, I mean, starting okay. off, starting off, uh, the invasion began in the early hours of the 1st of September, uh, 39. But, but I think the evening before, um, mm. which you introduce the, the invasion with it's 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 an extraordinary tale even that that even those few hours in the evening would you mind just letting us know a little bit about that yeah um what you're referring to is that is the sort of infamous Gleiwitz incident um which happens just you know just after eight o'clock on the evening of the 31st of august 1939 um and it was the culmination really of a sort of a summer of you know, what, what we'd now, I suppose, call border provocation. So the Germans have been kind of um, prodding the Poles repeatedly. And they used to, they, I found it fascinating, actually found the files in the, in the German archive. Um, they had all of these, um, they identified lots of buildings, isolated buildings, farmhouses, barns, and so on, um, close to the German-Polish border, but on the German side. And um, a lot of these, so there's all these sort of maps and hand-drawn maps of where these buildings are. And each one has, you know, um, you know a, sort of a, almost like a scheme of, you know, how many people live there and, so, you know, or the, the details of what the building is. And then over that summer, all of these buildings mysteriously go up in flames. You know, every couple of nights, another one goes up in flames. And of course, the German press blames the Poles and says it's Poles coming over the border and doing these dreadful things because they're trying to sort of prod, keep prodding the Poles and, and always, um, in, in one sense, to try and provoke a response, but also to try and um, uh, make Poland essentially look like the bad guy. That's, I mean, this is, this is basic sort of totalitarian techniques. So trying to make Poland look look like look as the uh, the villain of the piece, so that you know it will it will undermine Poland's um, you know international alliances, its international friendships, and so on. So this has been going on all the way through that summer of 1939, and it culminates in there's a couple of other operations at the same time, but Gleiwitz is really the, the big one, um, and Gleiwitz was was a similar one. There was a, this is Gleiwitz was then. Uh, was then in Germany. It's now called Gliwice, and it's in southwestern Poland. But then it was in Germany. It was about five kilometers from the Polish border, and it's a reasonably big city. Um, and what the, the plan was that there was this SS squad that went down there a few days beforehand, um, and they were 
given the job of raiding a um, a German radio station in Gleiwitz, um, posing as poles, making some sort of incendiary um, uh, broadcast over the airwaves, uh, firing a few shots in the air and disappearing into the night. And this was this was supposedly to be the sort of the crowning Polish provocation of that summer of provocations, false flag provocations anyway, um, that would give Hitler his excuse to launch the war and, and say, as he did the following day on the 1st of September, he announced to the Reichstag, no, we are now firing back. And he's referring to Gleiwitz. He's saying that these, these dastardly Poles have attacked us yet again. Uh, so we we are due, you know honor bound to to uh, to fire back and he, and he describes what happens the invasion as we are fighting back so it's very it's, it gives him his his excuse but it's a remarkable story because of course those ss men are attacking a german radio station with german radio staff who are none the wiser they don't know what's going on they 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 are rounded up and and pushed into the cellar uh, and the, the SS try and make their make their uh, announcement over the, the airwaves, which doesn't really work. It's, it fails. Um, it would be quite comical, actually. The whole story would be rather comical, were it not for the fact um, that the sort of the crowning piece of evidence that this was of, of Polish authorship of, of the Gleiwitz incident was that they left the body of a Polish activist behind, a chap called Franciszek Honiok. Um, who had been sort of pulled up by the Gestapo a few days earlier and been, been sort of kept in a in a cell for the previous few days and you know no paperwork is no um, he didn't leave a paper trail at all uh, and he was drugged and then taken to the side of the Gleibitz radio station and shot uh, and left for dead and and um, it was his body that was supposed to provide the sort of irrefutable evidence that this was a Polish job. Um, and I mean, really, the Polish, the, the, the Gleibitz incident failed, really. They didn't make the, the, the um, uh, announcement they were supposed to make. Um, for some reason, that failed. So the technology failed them. Um, so, you know, Germany did its best to sort of use it as, a, as its casus belli to, to, to um, provide the justification for the war. But it was, uh, you know, the rest of the world didn't, but didn't take the bait. And certainly, you know, the British and the French um, stood by their alliances. They duly declared war on the 3rd of September. They didn't do anything to defend Poland, but they at least declared war. Um, so in that sense, the Gleiwitz incident sort of failed. But it's a, it's a classic case of a, of a false flag operation. And it's a, very, it's a fascinating story. And so it wasn't effective with the international partners of, of, of Poland, but how effective was it with the, um, Brit, uh, with the German uh, populace? I mean, they read the papers, but, you yeah. know, do we know if they really believed it or not? Um, I think, I mean, on the back of this sort of drip drip of propaganda, as I mentioned, all of these sort of um, provocations and um, I mean, Hitler, Hitler needed that, actually. He needed to be able to sell the war as a defensive measure. Um, Hitler was kind of he was frustrated throughout his career up until, you know, the middle of the war, effectively. He was always frustrated that you know, not least his own generals, didn't really want to fight. You know, he always said that, you know, he had to sort of lead them by the nose, you know, that he needed, had, to, had to take the lead and, and that he, he shouldn't, ha he said he shouldn't have to goad them to go to war. It should be that they should be willing to do it. And he's always frustrated. And in a sense, the same problem applies with the German people themselves. You know, this is a Germany that had lost two million people in the First World War. 
um, had lived under the shadow of the of the peace that followed the Versailles Treaty, you know, the, the territorial truncation, you know, Germany's humiliation as it was seen. Um, so the, the German people, and Hitler understood this, the German people wanted to see Versailles overturned and they wanted to see Germany back in its, as they saw it, rightful place in the world, because all that's that's what the Nazis were supposed to deliver. That's what they promised, right? Um, but the German people didn't want to go to war again in 1939. That was that was horrific. You know, they'd only just recovered from the last war, um, so they wanted what the Germans, what the Nazis were bringing in terms of status, in terms of the territory back, and so on. But they didn't necessarily want to have to fight for it. So this is why the sort of piecemeal approach that Hitler had, had taken up until that, you know, with the Sudetenland in 1938, with the return of the Memelland in 1939, all of which had been ostensibly peaceful. Um, they applauded that. They loved the, the fact that he was getting those results, but without going to war. Um, so, at, you know, going to war in 1939 for Poland or for, for to take territory from the Poles um, was something that, you know, if you'd asked them, the majority of Germans would have said, oh, no, we don't want to do that. So it had to be sold to them as a defensive me measure. So this wasn't just sort of necessarily, you know, propaganda eyewash just to get over a, an immediate problem of declaring war. It's, it, it's rather more fundamental than that, that uh, the German people themselves really didn't want to go to war. So you had to create this ruse uh, to make it happen. Mm. Um, well, the the British and French response, which it, I mean, the events you describe in the book is very interesting with Chamberlain um, and his response. I mean, it took, took them two days to declare war. Mm. How much did they need to be persuaded to do so? That's a good question. Um, there are a lot of misgivings on the, on the British and French side, actually more so the French. Um, the fundamental problem here is that the British, both the British and the French had um, an overestimation of their own significance in the in this sort of trail of events. They had imagined, you know, they, in the previous year you had Munich in 38, and then you had, um, you know, Hitler marching into, you know, the rest of Czechoslovakia or, or Bohemia uh, in, 19, in March 39, and that's the point at which, you know, appeasement is dead. I mean, it, even Chamberlain, the arch-architect of appeasement, realises that appeasement hasn't worked, Hitler's teeth haven't been pulled, Germany hasn't been uh, satisfied with its territorial uh, gains, uh, and, you know, the the, um, the policy is effectively dead in the water at that point. So even Chamberlain realises that. So you switch to a sort of more of a policy of, of confrontation, where, you know, Britain particularly is, is sort of drawing a line in the sand, and you have this guarantee given to Poland and to Romania um, in March of 1939, saying, you know, if, if, if you're attacked by Germany, we will stand by you. And that's the root of, you know, why Britain goes to war in, in, uh, in Poland's name in 1939. Um, but the, the British and the French, as I said, they overestimated their own significance because they believed that, you know, as the sort of grand imperial powers and so on, that, you know, if they just raised their voices, that Hitler would actually come to heel. Um, and Hitler was way beyond that. He was way beyond coming to heel. Um, so he was quite willing to call their bluff, which is effectively what he does. So the British and the French are basically saying, well, you know, we'll just guarantee Poland and that will stop Hitler in his tracks because he wouldn't dare go to war you know, against us as well. Um, and that's what they assumed would happen. So there's no real planning, certainly on the British side, there's no real planning gone into 
you know, what would happen if, you know, if Hitler does attack Poland, what would we do? You know, what would be the logistical situation? How would we respond militarily to that to that attack? Um, so they're just expecting that uh, that Germany will do what is do as it's told. So there's a lot of agonizing in those sort of couple of days, the first and second of um, of September 39. Essentially, with the British and the French, the French are, are more reluctant than the British, but the British, all of the um, sort of cabinet discussions that I've that I've read, they talk a lot about British honor, and they say we have to stand by Poland because this is British honor. Otherwise, no no power will ever trust us again. So they're not really talking about what we are going to do in defense of Poland. They're talking about, well, you know, well, we just have to go through that, go through with this and declare war. So you can see that it, it's a sort of a moral imperative rather than necessarily a military one. You know, this is just something that they have to do and uh, sort of what follows militarily will follow in due course. And as we know, most of that was not very much. So it's very interesting, that aspect, that I think they, they, they're conscious constantly talking about British honour, that it's a, a, a reflection of our honour and our standing in the world that we have to go through with this and declare war. So almost the the pinnacle of the British achievement was in, in declaring war, but not yeah. actually not actually doing We're not anything actually doing anything. Yeah. I mean, we didn't yeah. do anything. In it. You know, the French do something in response. They, they launched the Tsar Offensive, um, which from memory, I think is about the 7th or 8th of, uh, of September 39. Um, and that is a is a land offensive against Germany. They attacked through the Saarland. I mean, it redefines half-heartedness, if we're honest. Um, you know, they, they advance about five kilometres. They're fired at by, you know, the sort of rather hollowed out skeletal German forces that they face. Uh, and they stop. Uh, and, you know, I think the death tolls are in the death toll is, is sort of just about in the hundreds, I think, but it's it's minuscule. Um, and uh, so they stop when they're fired out and then they retreat again. Um, so it, it's it, it's a really um, very half hearted effort. Um, but at least I mean, it's more than the British did. I mean, the British, uh, to our shame, you know, we had the capability. We didn't have troops on the on the ground in France, obviously. So that wasn't an option. But we've got the RAF. We had the technological will and capability uh, to go and and bomb Germany if we if that was the order that was given, and we could do it. We bombed um, German naval installations in early early September thirty nine, and we dropped leaflets over Germany, over West German cities, Cologne, Essen, and elsewhere. Um, you know, imploring the German people to cease and desist. You know, being so beastly to the poles. Um, so we could do it. Um, but the political will wasn't there to actually go and, you know, bomb Germany, which is arguably what we should have done. Um, so uh, both the British and the French, actually, I think, were, you know, utterly failed in their military response to the uh, to the invasion of Poland. So, and I, I, I do want to really concentrate on the Polish experience, but just just on that British and French response, what have they bombed Germany? Could that have uh, impacted the uh, invasion of Poland? Um, to some dis to some extent, yes. I mean, the, it, it, it's debatable. Um, I think had the French invasion been conducted with more vigour, 
Um, and bear in mind that German forces in the West are absolutely stripped to the bone. They have very little in the way of air cover and artillery in the rest because they are stripped right down because everything of any value is, is in the East against Poland. Um, so they are very weak, effectively. The British and the French didn't know that. Um, but the, you know, had they pushed, the, had the French pushed the Tsar offensive with more vigour, uh, they could have made some, some fairly rapid gains because I think that front was very, very fragile. Um, but as I said, there's no political will to pursue it. So, you know, essentially, as soon as they're fired at, they, they retreated. Um, would that have... And again, the same thing with the British. I mean, the British, had, had they actually um, embarked upon bombing Germany, um, I said it was technologically possible, but there's no political will to do so. But the end, had they done either the land offensive or the bombing, it would have naturally caused the Germans to pull... Uh, to respond by pulling some forces, whether that be anti-aircraft units uh, or tank divisions, whatever it might be, um, out of the, the Polish uh, theatre and pull them back to the West to sort of reinforce the West. So it would, it would have had an effect uh, on Poland. But I think, I mean, this is a counterfactual, so it's a difficult thing to sort of argue through. But um, I think one has to say that even in the event that both those things happened, um, I don't think, you know, the best that could hope, be hopeful really was that, that was that Poland's fate would be delayed rather than avoided, um, because I can't see I can't see the Poles, you know, sort of turning the tide uh, against the Germans on that in that in the Polish theatre, because because they were simply, you know, up against, you know, too great a force against them. And um, so even the removal of, a, you know, a couple of uh, divisions or, or would never actually have made that much difference. Right. Um, now the Polish army was was pretty big, actually, wasn't it? it it's yeah. uh, around a million men. Um, yes. And yes. so, so, so obviously that you know that's a, that's a significant force. But um, the impression one gets from reading the book is is that yeah, as as you've as you've alluded to, um, you it's also the knowledge of, of of history as well that you you feel the Poles are doomed from the very beginning. Um, with yeah. the invasion from the Wehrmacht, what what was their strategy? I mean, was there anything they could have done to to stop it, uh, to stop the the, the Wehrmacht from um, from their successful invasion? Um, not much is the is the short answer. Um, Poland. I mean, I remember I gave a um, presentation a couple of years ago to um, um, some military veterans, a couple of veterans of Sandhurst. Said when, uh, you know, we were amazed when I was explaining what Polish sort of strategic planning was in 39, because they said the way they'd already, always been taught it was the Poles basically didn't have a plan, kind of, you know, it was that sort of classic, you know, fools, not even fools on horseback, just fools against tanks. That was the kind of the way it was described, which I was quite shocked by. Uh, but no, they did have a sort of thought out plan. They had a they had an Eastern plan and a Western plan developed in the 1930s because, they you know, they've got two enemies. Soviet Union at the east um, and the Germans in the west, and both the Soviets and the Germans have designs on Polish territory. Uh, Poland is, you know, re re-established in 1918, um, taking territory from both um, on the territory that it, you know, it used to have back in the back in the 18th century. But it takes territory from both um, the nascent Soviet Union and uh, and uh, and Germany. Um, so it has two two very real enemies on either side. So it has has two plans. It has an eastern plan, a western plan. Can't do both at the same time. That's the fundamental problem. So it activates its western plan 
1939 when it becomes clear that um, if there is going to be a war, it will come from the West, from Germany. And that plan was basically to uh, have, first of all, to have alliances with greater powers, with West, with Western powers. So they knew they couldn't defeat Germany alone. They couldn't realistically stand up to Germany alone. So they needed that alliance with Western powers, which they got, um, or thought they had at least. Um, and from then on, it's about how you actually face down that German threat. And they know that the Germans are technologically better. They know that they are numerically better, superior, um, have better weapons and so on. Um, so what they need to do is to, is to engage German forces, first of all, uh, and then execute a fighting withdrawal. So the engagement is necessary because the Poles were concerned, and I think rightly so, that if they withdrew to the sort of heart of Poland and basically abandoned those areas in the West that are faced by the Germans, um, that the British and the French would say, well, if you're not prepared to fight for yourselves, then why should we fight for you? So they wanted to make sure that uh, that 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 war was was uh, was joined, that um, that the, the the invasion was resisted, and then once that has been resisted, like a tripwire, once the tripwire has been has been tripped, then they would try and execute a fighting a, a fighting withdrawal to the sort of heartland of Poland, where they hoped to be able to sort of you know create defensive lines using the rivers, for example, the Gred, the Vistula, the the Narew, the other great rivers in Poland. Poland doesn't have much in the way of natural natural defences. Um, that was essentially the plan. But the, of course, the problem is that Poland is in its uh, interwar um, iteration, in its form in, in the interwar period. It's it's surrounded by Germany on three sides: so East Prussia in the north, and you know Pomerania in the northwest, um, and Silesia in the southwest. So it's it's already before a shot's been fired, Poland is in the jaws um, of a German pincer. Um, so this makes the German attack really very easy, and, it, and they attack on all four fronts. Um, so that makes life very difficult. And then, of course, the second problem is that the Germans are more mechanised than the Poles are. Um, so they can always advance faster than the Poles can retreat. So once battle is joined, so that part works, the, the alliance is triggered, the British and the French declare war. But then Polish forces can't retreat fast enough, uh, and they end up, you know, in a in many cases, being routed and just uh, retiring in disarray and, and being effectively encircled and destroyed by the Germans. Now, there seems to be confusion uh, uh, between the senior command with the Poland, uh, with the, uh, the Polish senior command, hmm. and, and their brigade and divisional commanders. At least that's the impression I, I got from the book. I'm not a military genius uh, that obviously, <laughs> but, uh, but but it seemed to be leaving the those brigade brigades and divisional commanders, you know, exposed to the, the, the German advance whilst the high yeah. command sort of kept their strategy to themselves. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Um, yeah. I mean, I should, I should probably add, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really a military historian either. You know, I've kind of, I've embarked on this as much as anything to present a sort of a, it's like a non-military military history. It's, it's as much about sort of, right. um, human the fate of human beings in warfare as much mm. as anything so so you don't get much of that sort of you know that sort of standard military history fair of of you know the, the 103rd division advanced you know 12 miles northwest to the line of the such and such river i mean that stuff bores me rigid to be honest so i don't tend to do that um 
but no, I think I think you're right up to a point. There's a, there's a real mixture of talents in in the Polish army, and there's there's reasons, political reasons for that. Um, so one of the problems they had was that they had this sort of political regime between 1926 and 35 under Pilsudski, who was the great sort of architect of Polish independence in 1918, and he came back as sort of a quasi dictator um, with a coup in 1926, um, and the military was always his sort of fiefdom. And he promoted people who were, you know, politically um, sympathetic to him. So a lot of those sort of senior generals and senior commanders in 1939, although Pilsudski had been dead for you know, nearly five years, um, a lot of the people in senior positions were people who were there to some extent because they were Pilsudski's men. Either he'd fought with them in the First World War or they had been, you know, you know, he'd been positively predisposed to them for some reason. It's not necessarily because they were the best men for the job. And there are a number of people like, you know, General Sikorsky, who becomes the later commander of chief of the uh, government in exile, the Polish government in exile. He was someone who was not in favour with Pilsudski and so was in, um, uh, in a very lowly position. I, didn't, I don't think he even had a command in 1939 from memory. Um, so there's this sort of political element there. So you've got you've got people of very mixed talents uh, in the, the senior um, echelons of the Polish army. Um, on top of that, we have to bear in mind that you know Poland is facing a apocalyptic scene here. That it's being attacked by you know the most technologically advanced um, force on the planet a force which outnumbers the Poles uh, quite substantially, outnumbers the Poles in every category, tanks, planes, you know, horses, of course the Germans have horses as well, men. Um, and as I said before, the geographical situation means that Poland is, is already surrounded by the time it, you know, a shot is fired. So it's really in a very, very difficult situation. So I often think, you know, criticizing the generals for what they did in that situation is rather unfair um, because I certainly wouldn't want to be, you know, dealing with that, um, rather catastrophic situation uh, but nonetheless we have to we have to look at that stuff um there are some generals that sort of do do a good job i mean there was um Tadeusz kucheba is one who you know the main sort of counter-attack which was the attack on the the, the um the battle of the bzura um west of warsaw um that was kucheba's um baby that was his idea and it carried out very effectively you know it was ultimately beaten back but it was very effective and then there are others, people like Bortnowski, for example, who, uh, you know, evident, it looks very much like he had a nervous breakdown um, when the army that he was in charge of was basically encircled and destroyed. Um, understandable, perhaps, that he would have a no, nervous breakdown. But you can see there's, there's sort of varying quality there. Um, the high command, particularly, um, really, it's almost a sort of a bit part player, uh, almost from day one. Um, the high command decides to move. You know, Warsaw is threatened. You know, the, the German spearheads reach Warsaw on the 8th of September and the, the, the high command decides to move to um, Brest, which is further east, about 200 kilometers further east, uh, evacuates itself. And then in the process, of course, loses contact with, with you know, almost every, you know, Polish unit in the field. So at that point, you know, a, a Polish division or, a, you know, a cavalry brigade or whatever it is, is eff effectively um, fighting blind, they, they, they haven't got much in the way of communications, they don't know who's on their flanks, whether it's friend or foe, and they have no contact to the high command. So it's an impossible situation. So I think certainly you would point the finger at the high command, but then again, um, what else could they have done? It was just that, um, you know, in a sense, 
they were fighting a situation, fighting forces that were that were uh, too far superior to them. So I hope that was enough to get you interested in part two. That's going to be out next week. We'll talk more about the barbarity inflicted on the Poles. So join us then and give us a good rating if you enjoyed it.